1986 was a pretty incredible year in my growing up. It was the year that the Mets won the World Series, which in my house was a big deal. It was also the year that Ron Howard made the movie Gung Ho, which um, maybe one or two of you have seen. But it's about Pittsburgh in the 80s and uh, this Japanese auto manufacturer who comes to Pittsburgh and buys up a factory and Michael Keaton has to sort of uh, save the day by um, uniting the, uh, the local auto worker with uh, its, its uh, Japanese uh, new Japanese partner. And uh, my point in raising it is that that movie uh, and the book report that I did on Roberto Clemente in elementary school is about all I know about Pittsburgh. I am a total Pittsburgh dummy. And so when I chatted with colleagues at the Remake Learning Network um, about doing this episode, I jumped at uh, the opportunity to make this really a, a a, a pretty broad conversation about what's happening in Pittsburgh, um, in part so that I can learn more about the issues that are making it a really popular contributor to the conversation, especially as it relates to learning networks and how to create learning networks that help an ecosystem in a city thrive. And I think the folks in this conversation uh, really help to illustrate that. Meet some of them. Hi, everybody. My name is Ani Martinez. I'm the community manager and chief of operations at the Remake Learning Network. Presently, we are a regional-based network, which means we serve people, projects, and organizations that all in some way touch on education, learning, and the benefit of young people in Allegheny County, Beaver, Butler, Green, Fayette, Westmoreland, Washington, and parts of West Virginia. Uh, my name is Elaine Allen. I work at the University of Pittsburgh in the Swanson School of Engineering. I'm the director of our pre-college program, Investing Now, and our undergraduate diversity program, Pitt Excel. Um, I've been at the university for about 23 years. I'm from Pittsburgh originally. I'm a first-generation college student. And so when I think about my educational journey and the exposures I received, it was from a lot of out-of-school time type activities activities, pulled me in, funneled me and dropped me into college and it provided opportunity that everyone doesn't have. I'm Megan Ciccone. I am the Executive Director of Instructional and Innovative Leadership in the Fox Chapel Area School District, which is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I'm an active member of the Remake Learning Network and I'm also a facilitator for Code.org's Fundamentals course. My name is Liz Whitewolf. I'm the Technical and Education Manager at Fab Lab Carnegie Science Center. Fab Lab is a digital fabrication facility here in the Science Center the local area, and also kind of the actually West Virginia and Ohio a bit. Our mission statement, as it were, is to integrate STEM competencies into authentic making experiences for learners of all ages. And guess what? Coming back to Gung Ho, we didn't really bring up Gung Ho, but uh, we did talk a fair amount about what it means uh, for a city like Pittsburgh to reclaim its narrative from being a steel town to a major tech hub. Who benefits and who gets to participate in recreating that narrative? Two of the topics that come up in this conversation, I hope you're going to hear more about in coming episodes. The first one is learning networks, which is a conversation that's really been bubbling up over the course of the last 10 years or so. Um, how do we string together the experiences available in a geography 
such that young people are supported wherever they go, not just from schools or from home, um, but from all of the institutions that participate in establishing amazing learning experiences and and, uh, ways of building uh, STEM identities and and doing lots of the things that we talk about being critical to um, closing this gap in, especially as it relates to equity in science, technology, engineering, and math. The other one that comes up is broadening participation, which is an important phrase, and it's one that is at the top of minds of researchers, the National Science Foundation, practitioners, um, and it's one of those uh, <laughs> that has a lot of potential to become uh, a jargon, and um, but I think it's it's also one that has the potential to rally us around some common values and definitions for what it is we're trying to achieve. This conversation about Pittsburgh is a great opportunity for me to mention to you all that if you live in a geography um, where you feel like you have topics relevant to the show and uh, you want to suggest to me uh, guests for the show, topics, um, things that I'm not yet, uh, I haven't yet covered, or that you'd like me to cover in more or different depth, I hope you'll get in touch with me. Twitter is the easiest way to do that. It's at M.A. Lesser. One last note of thanks to everyone who joined for this episode, uh, friends from the Remake Learning Network in Pittsburgh. I learned so much about uh, the great city of Pittsburgh, and I think that everyone listening to this episode is going to as well. So thank you. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Everyone, thank you so much for being here. I feel like I have a sort of uh, a, a rock star Pittsburgh panel um, <laughs> of educators interested, not just interested, but but doing so much um, at the intersection of uh, learning innovation and uh, thinking about STEM pathways and how we... Um, not only hook and interest young people in uh, pathways toward uh, STEM futures, but but um, but also support them over time. And and uh, I am really grateful for your time and and the conversation for the show. I think uh, I, for one, I am super excited to uh, be talking about what's happening in Pittsburgh, which. Full disclosure, I am uh, so behind on how hip and interesting Pittsburgh is. Like, I get uh, bits and pieces from uh, some of, of you all, even. But beyond that, um, I am I am pretty new. So, uh, like so many things, I am a learner in this conversation about uh, what's happening in Pittsburgh. Um, I want to start with a question about, and, and I'm going to, dive right in because partly because uh with this group i feel like we have a ton to talk about and i want to get to the juicy stuff as quickly as possible someone who's been on this podcast uh stephanie rodriguez is the head of stem policy for uh, the after school alliance in washington dc and um we were talking in our this episode uh previous episode about computer science education but at one point uh, we were talking a little bit about her background, which is actually in uh, she's a uh, doctor of immunology um, is is her background. And 
she had said, and don't quote me exactly, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but but uh, she said basically that if you were to disambiguate uh, the data, and she's done this, to look at PhDs in um, not only her field of immunology, but uh, but in the that sort of area of medical sciences, um, that if you were to pull out women and then women of color, chances are they she'd know their name. This didn't I can't say it it shocked me, but it was a a moment of very startling, stark realization about where we are in uh, in time. Uh, Ani, I wanted to um, start with you to talk a little bit about uh, what it is that you are up to. And um, my question for everyone, um, and it doesn't have to be right now in answer to this question, but but hopefully through the course of our conversation is how do we deconstruct what is so clearly a problem for all of us? And what is it that in your work you feel like you're doing to uh, make some progress there? Thanks, Mark. For someone like myself who's from Pittsburgh, my dad is from South America. I am clearly Caucasian and didn't don't register with the same genes, although you know he's my biological dad. I grew up in Pittsburgh in the 90s, didn't meet another. Latin family until I was, you know, well into early adulthood. I think that starting with identity is a really key role for myself. If I center myself in the work around thinking about equity and thinking about education, thinking about registering as white in a space that is very much still in a black, white racial context. And so if I start there, I'm better able to uh, start to see what my locus of control is. And I think that we're really lucky from an organizer standpoint that that the rest of our team has all sort of made agreements to practice in that change model of starting with self. And so we drew out a diagram that was really thinking about, well, if we start with ourselves as individuals, and then we start to scope out and think of remake learning as an organization practice, and then really start to think about what it means to make changes on a system level. I think it helps keep you sane because uh, for a long, long time, education has really operated in its own language, its own processes, it has its own policies. Um, Social justice has done the same. So social work has had its own lane, its own language, its own policies, its own processes. And business, same, right? But what we're seeing is that without all three and then infinite more factors starting to pull together to change how we run education in the age of automation, we're not going to go anywhere, right? So it takes all of these voices, all of these languages, all of these identities to start to come to terms with themselves while also learning to better communicate with each other. And so from our standpoint, in the face of automation, the future of work, the future of education, the future of social justice is going to mean to be more human, right? And to start to pick out all of those pieces. 
and to really start to think about what it means to um, do that tough translating work. I don't know if that answers your question in the way that you wanted me to. <laughs> sure. For those who uh, it does, and and I think what you said is is pretty great. The uh, um, I love what you said about it taking all of these identities um, and and maybe you can transition with that to what remake is for those who don't know what the network is about and what it is you're trying to do mm-hmm. remake learning is very a very special entity I always start by saying, you know, Remake Learning isn't an organization. We are, in our essence, a network. It's in the name. But I think that can be difficult for people who aren't as familiar with the way that networks operate to really wrap their heads around it. Essentially, there is no Remake Learning without all of the members. That's people, that's projects, that's organizations, and there are thousands of them just in our region alone. And these are all people who have raised their hand and said, we want to start to tackle this issue around what the the present and future of learning means for our context in time, right? And so that means helping people have free and public conversations around really difficult issues. Um, I think that's why we're so lucky to have the panelists that are part of this conversation today. And that ranges from such a broad spectrum looking at technology as gadgets, looking at technology as language, looking at race talk as a new 21st century skill and everything in between, right? Looking at what it means to serve learners in remote rural areas, what it means to think about the context of living and learning in poverty. Um, What does it mean to be a person of color trying to operate in dominantly white spaces? What does it mean to... um, be a learner with exceptionalities and there's a huge spectrum there and a big part of our catch-up trying to figure out how we better serve people with disabilities right um so we also pulled together discrete working groups that um you know lots of people most of everyone i think everyone on this panel is part of at least one of those um so thinking about how we address policy and pre-service teaching by having conversations with higher ed uh what does it mean to Uh, build new and culturally appropriate innovative professional development? What does it mean to integrate computer science across our region, especially in a state like Pennsylvania, which we don't need to get into right now, so on and so forth. So Liz, um, tell us, so you are at uh, Science Center and um, I know that that, uh, among your the many things uh, in your CV, uh, you have earned a uh, title like Fab Guru. Uh, I know you've done special training with MIT on uh, running a Fab Lab in uh, in your institution. And I'm curious um, now that we've we've sort of talked at the at, uh, about what Remake is up to in Pittsburgh at the network level and thinking about policy and how we bring educators to some of these topics. Um, I want to kind of bring it down to the ground where um, young people are kind of traversing a landscape in Pittsburgh um, 
some supported, some not. And, and I'm curious to hear from uh, the Science Center's perspective about uh, my, my earlier question. How, how do we move the needle on the issue? And um, any, any reflection you want to have about, uh, about that, that quote from Stephanie? Um, well, that quote from Stephanie is kind of my life right now. So um, we're we're doing a program right now where where we're addressing that that equitable access issue in Fab Lab, and it's a it's a one to one mentoring program in the Fab Lab where we take underrepresented youth and put them one to one with a STEM mentor, with a with a professional STEM a person in a STEM profession. And they work side by side. They basically co-learn in the fab lab. They learn these digital fabrication technologies. And towards the end of their um, nine month long mentorship, they will work on a capstone project together. So this, um, our first pilot program has been really successful. We've been able to, ma to, ma to match 10 pairs of mentees with STEM professionals. But looking forward in the years to come, we have a growth plan where we're going to triple our enrollment here in another two years. And, um, our biggest, our biggest issue at that point is finding STEM mentors who can adequate, adequately reflect the population that we have coming into our program. Um, it's not just a problem in Pittsburgh, but it is a huge problem everywhere. And um, and we're, as we're actively working to fix it on the ground level with these students, we are actively fighting against it every step of the way because in order to create these these young stem professionals who are w women or people of color um they need to see that reflected already so it's almost like putting the car before the horse or even um kind of building the plane as we go almost we're 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 working on the problem and at the same time fighting against the problem so uh, yeah i i work that i work that problem every day and i and i totally understand what she means when she says the uh, you know the percentage of women in these in these industries is is terrible terribly low and the women of color is even lower so i can tell you that we're working we're working on it here and not just me a lot of places a lot of groups in the remake learning network are working on the same problem but we're fighting against it while we're working on it it's difficult how do you guys um the uh science center I, I know that nationally, they're the part of the issue with science centers, uh, museums. I worked for a while for uh, in arts education um, for uh, a large uh, theater and and um, public art space, uh, and our issue was always that while we had a lot of youth coming through the doors from you know 45 miles outside of uh the center it was much harder to get them from 45 steps away from the center um do you how do you feel about um who's coming through the fab lab and um and do you guys have to take uh, special consideration in the design of your outreach and programs so that your reach you're casting as wide a net as possible yes yes to um yes to that actually it it is very our, our approach to net casting as you call it is very thoughtful um and it's it's not an accident who's who's coming in through the door there are 
fewer people from 45 steps away that come in. I mean, we're located in the north side of, of Pittsburgh, which is an area, a, a well a well underrepresented STEM area, let's say. So getting those kids from those families into the Science Center is a lot more challenging than getting the kids bust in from 45 minutes away um, on a day-to-day -day basis. So that is that is something that we, we, we thoughtfully approach. And a lot of that, uh, Pittsburgh is, is, a, is a very foundation heavy place. So there's there are a lot of philanthropic foundations here that are supporting this type of equity. And we are lucky enough to have one of those one of those foundations supporting our work here in the north side in that we are funded to visit every single fourth grade classroom with our mobile lab um, every school year by this organization. And you would think that we could easily get those same fourth graders who are one to you know, three or four miles away to come to our fab lab to have this experience, but it's not it's not that simple. We take our one of our mobile labs the uh, mile and a half down the street to um, deliver these programs directly to the schools just to remove that one more barrier. I know it's a mile and a half or two miles, but it's a it's a big barrier for these schools. Yeah. So we do have we do have um, funding, foundational funding and, and grants that that help address this issue but we're always trying to remove any other barrier that we can to get those people in the door or to bring our programs to them, which has actually been very, very beneficial um, to doing this outreach work is actually being mobile in that respect. Yeah. Uh, I want to come back to the mobile app because I think it's a, a really neat um, innovation and I think and it's something that I've I've heard of going on in a few places and I'm curious to hear how it's working in Pittsburgh um, before we do Elaine uh, you talked a little bit about your own experience and um, knowing a little bit uh, the little bit that I do about the pre-college programming that you are doing for the engineering school at uh, Pitt and, and also about the long history you have as an educator um, in the Pittsburgh area, really trying to, to craft and support these pathways. I'm, I'm just curious to hear from you about um, what you see as the most um, pressing issues as we we try to move this needle together and um and any reflection you have about um you know stephanie's statement as it relates to uh you know your story and the young people that you're working with all the time i'll start off with sort of the story of young people in my story but i think when you think about particularly women of color there's an intersectionality issue that exists there. And so you have this gender, um, just gender challenge of how do I gain exposure to STEM and feel empowered and in place in, in that area. But then you also have sort of the experiences of, of, of people of color in terms of the same, so it's like this double lack of exposure or this double issue that they're pressing through. And so mentors and role models are significant. So one thing that, through Investing Now, we started a couple years ago a program called Female Empowerment Mission. So it's for our high school girls. It's been funded by EQT. And what we were able to do is bring together, Investing Now is a pre-college program. So we have males and females for underrepresented students primarily 
that are interested in STEM. So we had some foundations come through and we did a foundation tour. And as they walked around, one of the foundation representatives said to me, Elaine, where are the girls? I see more guys here than girls. And so even though I see this as a program that's run to represent its students, where are the girls? So if you're interested in writing a grant to address issues with the girls, then we to develop a program for the girls, then we're interested in funding it. And so we crafted this female empowerment mission and it's really based on exposure and empowerment. So how can we expose you to those role models that you talked about, Liz? How can we find them from wherever and bring them in so that they're interacting with the young ladies, they're telling their stories, not just stories of success, but sometimes they're stories of challenges hmm. or stories of how they had to break through in certain environments or stories of resilience or, or you know any of those things that are necessary. Um, talk about the accomplishments that they've made, but also talk about um, the things that they had to press through. And so we found that has been helpful. Our young ladies can talk about ethical dilemmas. They can see where they fit in the picture. They can see the journey's not hard. They feel empowered to go in and take over, which I love. Mm. Um, and so I think all of that becomes a part of that process. Because when you think about women in STEM or even women of color in STEM, when we talk about women in STEM, which is primarily white and Asian women in STEM, you see more of them pursuing those fields, hmm. particularly in engineering, but they don't necessarily stay. So there's a culture problem there. And then for women of color, that, that culture problem feels even tougher to, to persist through. And so helping them understand, hey, here are all the reasons why you should be interested in this. Um, here are some of the battles you're going to go through, but here's why it's important and significant. And here's some examples of people that have done it. That has been a, a key part of how we move students through the pipeline. I wonder, um, Megan, for somebody like you who is is working for working with districts and trying to uh, figure out what innovation looks like within um, that system and one of the questions that comes up a lot for us in New York that I was hoping you would reflect on a little bit is, is um, that, that even though to the outside, New York feels like a, a fairly sort of contained space, as we have tried in New York to network um, learning programs of all types, we realized too that one of the major challenges is, is that uh, even within a borough, um, things can be the challenges, the barriers can be so hyper local that um, sometimes it's hard to network them and and talk about them in the context of whether it's five boroughs or a state or or whatever else. Um, my question is for you, both as an educator within the system, but also as a network member. Um, do you feel like there are things there there are things you've experienced in your practice that would help uh, illustrate that um, that that networking these ideas and uh, these values is. Uh, is important one, but also that it's it's feasible and doable. Like, can can we? You are um, up in uh, Fox Chapel, right? In in a big part of your work right now. Uh, do you feel like whether it's 
through the network or other things that you're doing? Um, do you get to push your practices out beyond that? Or are the issues in Pittsburgh so sort of hyper-local that it's hard to, um, to spread them beyond your, your silo? Uh, so I think that um, in every organization, whether it be a school district entity or um, you know, a, an intermediate unit that deals with 40 or 50 school districts, you always, when you're really looking at your issues, you always feel like they're really hyper-local. And you're so in the mix of it, and it's it's they're so compelling and sometimes overwhelming that you just live in that space and don't, for a second, step out of that space. And what I think Remake Learning has really done well to support all of us is it has instead of waiting until the moment where you're so focused on your challenge, your issue, um, your task, that you ask for help then. Instead, it has created this ecosystem, this environment of partnerships and relationships and collaborators mm. that they are part of your your family, your network, your district, your corpus of those that are your think tank. So it has exploded our think tank to be far more than just one school district or 42 school districts or school districts, but universities and science centers and librarians and artists and people like Ani, who I'm glad that you explained what you did, but just care about the humans in our space. And so then you aren't so forced to think locally because you already have this understanding of this broader group. And so really quickly, once you resonated and lived there for a while, as new issues arise, you think immediately to others who may have had a similar issue or others who would be an expert on looking at this issue. So when I look at my school districts, the concerns that I have within my own school district, the fact that I know that there are little girls in fourth grade who don't think that they are mathematicians. And while they're getting better grades than some of the boys, and while they're scoring higher on standardized tests, they still have a change in sense of agency that's it's warped. And it's obviously societal environmental because genetically, we know that when we look at their scores, they're doing well. When, when I look at that issue, I'm not just looking at Fox Chapel, I'm looking at an issue that impacts everyone. And my district in particular is really disparate. So we have one building that's nearly 50% free and reduced lunch. We have another building that might be 3% free and reduced lunch. Mm. Now, what we don't have, and what a lot of the suburbs in Pittsburgh don't have, is high minority rates. Um, and so when we uh, are creating partnerships and when we're looking for help, um, what I tend to find is when we look at equity, we sometimes forget to look at the broader concerns of equity and we just look at equity in our district. So my, I'm completely guilty of that as well. I focus on gender equity because that is a base conversation I can have with every person as a point to start talking about privilege and society. And, and that is one piece. But that doesn't mean that on the back end and eventually on the front end, I'm not looking at those very low digits of minorities that we have that would struggle with something like this far more than my privileged white self would. Mm. It does make sense. I, and tell me ideas and values is feasible. So yes, short answer, networking these ideas and values with a larger group is feasible. And, um, usually I get more insight 
by utilizing people outside of my own district um, at, at some point in the process of designing something that will be help better children's lives. Yeah. I love, um, tell me if I, I have it right, but so to, to paraphrase what you just said, part or paraphrase one of the ideas uh, that you just shared I think part of what you're saying is that when the when the network works and when the think tank is strong, um, working hyper locally is actually working much more globally because uh, you have those minds connected to your work uh, in a much more real way. So so those things are are being transmitted back and forth, um, and I love that idea. And and um, I I wonder. Um, I, I, I guess I want to come back before we finish this conversation to talk about, um, more specifically about what a city or any kind of locality that, um, feels like, uh, we're onto the right thing in, in Pittsburgh around the network that you all are working on, uh, for somebody who wants to get started with what that looks like. I'm, I'm eager to have you all share um, where that starts and what are the steps that any, uh, any educator anywhere can, can take to get a network started and, and be thinking about um, how we create that think tank, as you called it. Um, one of the things, uh, Liz, you brought up a mobile lab that the Science Center has been working on. And when I think about uh, the mobile lab, one of the ideas that I think a lot about is uh, a colleague of, of mine, of ours, um, Dr. Nicole Pinkard up in Chicago. She does a lot of work. Uh, she has done a lot of work in the city of Chicago. Uh, she is now uh, faculty at Northwestern. And she's talked a lot in the past about um, this sort of an analogy to um, the idea of food deserts, um, which is, is something that culturally we have certainly um, come to embrace and start to understand and even start to do something about. Um, she talks a lot about learning deserts and, and especially as it relates to STEM. Um, she has the, a great presentation that I would encourage anybody who can catch her to go and check out. But she does a great job of layering um, some mapping that she's done of the city of Chicago as it relates to STEM opportunities. Um, and you can pretty clearly see where, where there are pockets of tons of opportunity, tons of, um, lots of ways to sort of, uh, traverse and experiment and, and be supported as a young person. And then areas where you would have to find a bus or walk 20 to 30 minutes, um, in order to do that. Um, she founded the digital youth network, um, and has done a lot of work with uh, with Chicago to realize that. I'm curious how it plays out in Pittsburgh. Um, it, the mobile lab, I think, is a compelling idea and, and one that certainly uh, has got to be fun to sort of pitch. Uh, I think people get it right away, what the need is, and love the idea of, like, the the um, digital age bookmobile, right? Um, I'm, I'm curious though, uh, Liz, maybe you can start and talk about uh, what are the, um, 
what what have the experiences of the Science Center been with the mobile lab? And then for others of, of you all to reflect a little bit on how Pittsburgh lays out in relation to uh, learning deserts versus uh, experiences that are well situated. And, and how do you address some of that um, through the network? So, yeah, our mobile labs and we have two mobile labs. We started with just one, but realized very quickly um, that that this was a, a hot commodity, and that and we couldn't possibly visit all of the STEM deserts around Pittsburgh or or around this tri-state area. So very quickly into our um, first mobile lab, we decided we needed to have a second one, and in fact, that's not quite good enough yet either. Although honestly, there are quite a few mobile labs in Pittsburgh, so um, we are we are lucky to have so many mobile labs. I think we have four or five in the area. We also have um, makerspaces almost everywhere. So we're rich in makerspaces, we're rich in mobile labs, mm. but we're not rich in is uh, and is thoughtful integrated STEM programming into education. And what the mobile fab lab, what we do is we go out to a school for a week. And I, I like your comparison to a bookmobile, but imagine if that bookmobile were computers and you didn't leave them with the students. So the mobile lab is a is almost like a, a Band-Aid to do some really cool integrated concepts, some cool digital fabrication technologies, some very authentic problem-solving, um, thought-evoking making in a school, but then, but then we leave. So we can have two mobile fab labs, we can have six mobile fab labs, but... Um, the desert's still there. Mm. And for that one week where we're doing that programming, it's not. And it's very exciting. And those kids, they, they get that, they get that, that deep experience. But um, the, the mobile lab is not, not a fix for these learning deserts. I think Megan can speak, can speak about that as well. She does have a mobile lab at Fox Chapel as well. Yeah, Megan, Megan, how, how has, uh, tell us about your experience with it. The impetus for creating our own mobile fab lab uh, originated with the fact that the Carnegie Science Centers was rather coveted and often booked. Mm. And we have a mobile fab lab here at our high school, and we offer, you know, free PD um, for teachers from anywhere, really, and our own students design and build and create the mobile fab lab. Mm. So all the wrappings, everything that's in there, they designed and created. Um, and they wanted, in an effort to see how we could push digital fabrication and making um, and engineering really, and that thinking behind it into our elementary schools, we created a pilot program. Um, so Kerr Elementary School is our highest free introduced lunch and our highest percentage of students that are minority in attendance and we have all second graders from there come up um, and we created um, a six-day engineering experience that is in the project-based learning or PBL mode if you will and it, the culmination was um, having them come to the fab lab and uh, having our high school students help them create on laser engravers, on CNC machines, um, the designs that they came up with in the classroom from this engineering PBL, if you will. And it was a great success. I mean, A, I've never seen kids as excited as that, as I'm sure Liz can attest, but we knew immediately that we needed it for every single student. And in all of the research that I was looking at, it seems like somewhere before middle school is that critical point where we're losing kids. 
So really specifically engineering and technology in STEM. So I understand that a lot of the equity is around the amalgamated field of STEM, but it seems like tech and engineering is actually where, where we're looking at those horrendously low numbers of like 11% of engineers are female. So we wanted to get that before middle school. And we didn't know how much before because the research is lacking in peer reviewed journals and elementary STEM programs. So my shot was second grade. Um, and I should have some analytics to back that up, but it just felt like it could work. Mm-hmm. So we created, um, uh, we allowed high school students to design a mobile fab lab and we sought some funding. My district supported it um, to a high degree and the Grable Foundation also supported it. And then 84 Lumber threw in some money um, and our high schoolers actually designed a tiny house mobile fab lab. It's pretty cool. And it serves uh, four school districts in the region and uh, also a private school. And so, um, again, back to that network piece, like it's hyper local, but is it? I think that another addition to that is those relationships and who you pick to partner with can sometimes be organic because that works. So New Ken Arnold is where I live. It's 100% free and reduced lunch. It serves about 50% of our students are minority. Um, so that was, and it's geographically close enough to drive a tiny house in winter-ish weather. Um, Allegheny Valley, I uh, used to teach there and it's close, 44% free and reduced lunch. Um, Shaler Area School District, uh, you know, really trying to get into the maker movement and um, has a lot of remake learning players that live in Millvale. And so we picked places that made sense that would work and we really wanted to build capacity. And so, and we don't charge for it, which is, which is obviously really important because the districts couldn't pay the fee that was required at one point before the science center had that that funding they got this year and so what we did with it is we brought in the teachers we trained them on computational thinking and iteration and design thinking and luma design thinking and all of the tools and then we with them created a new week-long ish course before the fab lab gets there um the activities that happen, the experiences that happen when the Fab Lab's there, and then another set of follow-up activities. Um, and so this is our first year that it's been out in all of the districts, and we're just we're really excited about it. We also partnered with University of Pittsburgh, uh, Christian Shun from the Learning Research and Design Collaborative was kind enough to allow us to use his pre- and post-survey from a previous NSF grant. And so it's an early STEM activation survey and so these kids look at a Likert scale and they answer questions like, I like building or I'm good at building or engineers are cool. I mean, I don't get the chi-squared business behind it that makes sense <laughs> in the end, which is why I have this job and I'm not a PhD. But I do know that when we look at the analysis, it's really compelling, um, especially when we look at um, gender. We do not have any demographic questions about ethnicity with the small a portion here in our district, I felt like that would have the opposite effect. I, I didn't want kids to feel like they had to label themselves in a place that they already look pretty different. Um, that's something we, we might want to revisit, but at least in terms of females, really statistically start to identify more with that early activation than before we got there. Can I add in there? I hope you will. Go ahead. <laughs> Go back on the mobile science labs a little. The University of Pittsburgh has mobile science labs as well, um, a Pitt mobile science lab. And so they've worked with churches, 
and the YMCA. And so during the summer, they'll make rounds to go to different neighborhoods. So they may be in one neighborhood or at one location for a week. And they, the students who participate have an opportunity to participate in hands-on science labs or different activities. Um, faculty members who are applying for grants sometimes will design a module or something that can be used in the community as a part of the exposure or the outreach efforts for for that lab and so that that's one way that we've exposed students and we also have it at basketball game I mean, at football games at community um festivals things like that just so there's uh an exposure but it's sort of like the mobile like the book lab you talked about earlier mm -hmm. so it's, it's like this mobile library that goes from place to place so that's good for exposure we've also at the university of pittsburgh started in the past year developed this idea about community engagement centers. And so they have one that started in Homewood, not a space yet, but a lot of programming going on. So we've marked, we've partnered with organizations within the Homewood, which is one of the neighborhoods in Pittsburgh, highly um, African-American neighborhood. Um, so they have partnered with organizations there. And so we at the University of Pittsburgh, we're designing a science lab that'll be in that community. Mm. So students won't just get this sort of one-off mobile lab exposure, which is great because that pulls them in, but as they're pulled in, they can then do some work in the science lab. There's even one of the whys in that area that has this extensive studio. And so you find more of the university's efforts to move into the community. So to move out of the university campus in the community so that you can impact the learning, the STEM learning of students there. Hmm. So there's a similar um, development, community engagement center being formed in the Hill District of Pittsburgh, which is another highly African-American community. Hmm. And so those exposures are great. And then how do you move out into other areas so that that learning goes deeper as Ani talked about. The, the other thing that I've seen inspire students to really sort of get involved or get engaged in STEM is sort of connecting social justice and STEM together. So what are the community challenges or the observations that you make that are problematic and how can we design an opportunity for you to solve that problem? Mm -hmm. And so giving those problems to students, helping them think about solving them, I think that engages them in terms of learning the background math and science were involved in that, but it also gives them ownership in the process. And so that, Elaine, that yes, go ahead, Ani. <laughs> no, you. I just wanted to like also compliment that by, by thinking about how that helps teachers by providing them with higher expectations. Absolutely. Because so often what we hear is, well, innovation is great, but it's for kids when they're ready. Mm. Right. It's for other kids when they're ready and only after they're ready. And that's something that like has become such a big part of my work is to refute that at every turn. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, that motivates. So now I have a reason to learn that information because I see how it will solve a problem that I see every day. And, and so also it, it helps people not focus on the stuff that's created. You know what I mean? When you talk about the real learning, it is about that conversation and their, their thoughts and the iterations instead of like, this object that they make, whether that's in a trailer, in a lab, or in a cool science experiment, and mm. that's really valuable. It helps us get away from the sparkly object. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think with technology, there's so many ways that students can tap into things that maybe we couldn't when we were younger. And so developing that hunger, that passion, that activation sort of sends them off pursuing those fields. 
Yeah, so I realized like what I said directly after what Liz and Megan said seemed like I was trying to like combat their answer. It was actually my intention was actually the total opposite. It's just you need to come at it at these different angles. I think that's like just a really core part of why Pittsburgh is quote unquote working, mm. right? Um, I think because we've all sort of well, many of us in this work have made these sort of informal cultural agreements that like what you're doing is good, what you're doing is good. And if we both keep doing it and talk to each other at the same time, we're going to go a lot farther, a lot faster. Yeah. It seems like within the network of practitioners of all types and institutions that are part of the network, um, there is a, a strong sort of um, intentionality and give and take, and also um, uh, what's what's the just just support and I think um, understanding a, a sort of a feeling of um, solidarity maybe uh, that that you all are are after a, a shared goal. Um, one of the questions though that that seems relevant is while that's um one vibe within a network it seems like if if pittsburgh is anything like new york you can also drop um supports like that into a neighborhood or into a locality where um it feels like you are um you know coming in to fix you know as as the fixer um and that's something that uh youth development education uh you know all of our the sort of um uh, melding of practices um, have all dealt with in some respect. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you faced in Pittsburgh as it relates to either embracing uh, the desire to support and and sort of be there versus the sort of pushback uh, to say you, you know you're you're uh, in my community but you're not of my community. Um, how can you help? I think it's first of all really important to note that. We weren't always like this. So uh, I can tell you that in Pittsburgh, just the school districts alone, let alone school districts and higher ed and nonprofits and informal educators, I'm using my fingers to quote because I loathe that term. Um, we were really competitive, competitive for reputation, for grant funding, for test scores, you name it. And so like something changed. And when that something changed, <clears throat> Greg Bear, what happened with that change was a forced collaboration and communication and connection. And so we really started to like get to know one another mm -hmm. and talk and that, and, and again, you had to collaborate if you wanted to get a grant too. So there, it really was in many cases forced. Um, Plus, you don't want to disappoint Greg Bear because he's just so good. Like, I don't can, even can know you, how a person can you be foot, like that. footnote for those who who don't know the area who Greg Bear is. Oh, sure. Greg Bear is the I don't know what is he the president CEO of Grable Foundation, the father of the Remake Learning Network, an avid Fred Rogers fan. Um, <laughs> I feel like someone else can probably give his official title. Like, if the Godfather were a positive term with a positive connotation, we could do that. But don't include that part. In the I'm sure that's not good. I love that. Um, I love that in his description. I'm sure he'll appreciate it too. That you managed to reference uh, Fred Rogers and the Godfather in one <laughs> in one string of thoughts. I'm, yeah, he'll love that. Nova might actually be more the Godfather. The, the, the duo of those two. I'm not sure what Mary Murin would be though. I, uh, I interrupted. But I think you bring up Fred Rogers because the mythology of a geography makes a lot 
adds a lot also, right? So clearly we've had cultural and financial support in many different ways. Fred Rogers is another layer of that. For for the last, I mean, we're celebrating his 50th year this year. And um, he's, he's a, his name is a, is a point of peacemaking. People are like, oh, Fred Rogers, right? Let's just let let's let things settle for a minute because we're because now we've evoked the name, and um, thinking about Mr. Rogers' work is almost it's a catalyst for also encouraging conversations around what it means to talk about love in a civil discourse. Mm. For learning, that's really powerful, and and it's a it's a cultural agreement. I think for us also just like really quickly and include this, don't include this, but Pittsburgh is also just facing a different design issue in terms of population. Say more about I, that. I've said this to you before, Mark, but just to recontextualize, there are more children in Chicago public schools than there are actual human beings in the city of Pittsburgh. So what you're facing at a certain point becomes a numbers game. And there are researchers at KnowledgeWorks that really look at that, that population density as a key factor to be able to do the work that we're doing. So it's just, it's just another thing. Like, it's not magic, right? Mm -hmm. I try and demystify that as much as possible mm -hmm. for people. And can you just, for somebody whose ears perked up when you, when you, talked about that um, can you just be a little bit more specific about uh, how population density um, impacts or doesn't impact a, a um, an area yeah uh, how do I how do I want to how do I want to answer this question um, for population density, you're better able to like wrap your arms around the landscape, I think, right? You're able to provide just enough resources in a single area that they're still serving purpose without people sort of clamoring on top of each other. But the opposite works too. So as you start to get out of Center City and Allegheny County, you're starting to see the resources become less dense. And so while you see problems in places like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, where you can't network well because it's too dense, the opposite, the same is true for places that are less dense in terms of resources, uh, be that humans, be that money, so on and so forth. Because you really just can't sustain the momentum, right? So there's a momentum problem to solve here about who can have conversations and who can have a voice. Mm. Mm -hmm. And there's also a competition problem who can get funding. And that's not perfect. I'm not trying to say Pittsburgh has figured it out. I just know for whatever reason, it's certainly helped us sort of figure out what the data looks like, where you can find the data, who can make sense of the data for you, mm. all the different ways you can interpret that. And that just feels to me like a really different question when you start to look at places with different population densities. I'm not sure if I actually answered your question or if that's if that's the explanation you want to include, um, I'm sorry. You, you did, and I would encourage, you know, maybe what I'll do is in in our, our show notes, um, you can, you can, uh, 
we can pull up some of um, that research or or uh, and and give people more info. I just wanted to make sure there was a little context around that because I think some people hear that and, and are not sure. Uh, well, does popula- population density improve the scenario or or uh, detract? Um, I think it's always always you know there's it can be as simple as the grass is always greener because uh you know i i've heard in every city i've worked in at least three major cities with uh k-12 departments of education and informal providers and every one of those cities has said um you know sort of fill in the blank uh any other city uh oh of course of course they're making progress there they don't have the fill in the blank that we do um and it's it's always about uh we're either bigger we're more distributed um so as a sort of an explanation of why there's not more progress made um so we will link to uh to more info but i want to i want to come back to something you said ani um i don't think it's interesting because I think that um, maybe it's just me, but I think that um, a lot of the country looks at a city like Pittsburgh um, not necessarily as the love and a civil discourse uh, city. And what I mean by that is from a from a an, an education workforce perspective, I think especially as it intersects with um, with uh, our the sort of political narrative, I think Pittsburgh's often held up as like uh, a demonstration of how important it is that we get people back to work, um, if if that makes sense, right? So um, that you come to Pittsburgh, you better be ready to talk about workforce and, and, um, and sort of be, be part of that narrative. And maybe that's just me as an outsider and not knowing what the, the discourse in Pittsburgh is, but it does feel like that's sort of a national perception of who Pittsburgh is. I love that you brought Fred Rogers in and you're not going to believe this, but I am going to tell our millennials who Fred Rogers is. Um, (laughs) I know you'll all, uh, you'll all laugh and, and maybe throw up uh, a little. Um, but I had to, I was mentioning at work the other day that my kids are into Daniel Tiger, which is a, a new sort of spinoff cartoon uh, that came out of uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And um, there were absolute crickets when I, when I mentioned Daniel Tiger. They had no idea. And when I said Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, it was like, oh, yeah, that was a, it was a TV show, right? Um, and these are fairly savvy uh, young educators, so I was a little shocked. Um, but uh, Fred Rogers is the uh, is so many things, and I will link to his uh, Wikipedia page, which is extensive. He is not only the sort of uh, uh, parent creator of uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, but is uh, you know an OG. Uh, education, <laughs> progress, reform, uh, advocate, not just in the context of K-12, but in the context of, uh, of just, uh, you know, loving kids and helping them become productive. Um, but anyway, I want to come back to that, the, that what you said about, uh, love in a civil discourse. And I, I love that, that phrase, um, 
and that it came up here because because uh, Elaine, I was hoping that you would talk a little bit about this is not just a Pittsburgh thing, right? It's uh, anywhere I go, I might be in front of an audience that wants to talk more about um, love in a civil discourse, or I might be in a place that is everything else that I say until I say the word pipeline or workforce will be ignored. So I would imagine, um, and, and universities um, are sort of at the center of, of a lot of that friction, right? Between um, preparing humans for uh, prosperity in life um, versus preparing a workforce. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit from your perspective as somebody who's who's worked on pre-college programs for a long time, but also as a, as a native to Pittsburgh um, about that uh, that dynamic between those two and and um, what's the balance that helps us succeed no matter no matter what town or city you're coming from um in your mind what's the balance so i think i've been completely inundated in a university environment to be honest with you that i just think of um earning your degree and what that will get you particularly within the stem environment but it's interesting in september i attended the national stem ecosystem conference in kansas city and it was interesting to see a number of locations where industry, workforce development even, is really driving what happens in education um, and what happens to some extent, little, little in higher education. Mm. And so if you are in an environment where um, they are using drones or, or something along those lines, then you see a lot of that development happening mm. in the schools, in our out of school time programs. So that they're developing those skills in students so that they can go to college if they want to, or they can move right into that industry because they've been exposed to it and prepared for it. I, I don't know, and Ani might be a better person to answer this question. I don't know if we're there yet. I don't believe that industry is driving where education is going um, or where the universities are going. You know, they're not driving that at all. And so you might have this whole workforce development preparation pipeline and then you have this college to career pipeline mm. uh, yeah i'm glad that we had elaine start the response to that because it is so indicative of the reality versus the aspiration mm. so while i talk a big game about what remake learning does in practice you still need to recontextualize that with the realities of the landscape and the ecosystem, right? So I think people hear the word ecosystem and they see a dome because you're taught to see a dome. You're taught to see like clouds and the rain comes down and it feeds the water and that goes back and mm. that sort of creates this like dome-like shape in your brain or at least in my brain. <laughs> but with Remake Learning, we're really sort of the anti-dome, mm. right? Really looking at the connective tissue between each of those sectors and so those tissues right now, just because we've made really good and useful connections to the sectors, they're still pretty ghostly in places that really, really matter. Mm. Like our ability to speak truth to power in industry, for example, right? We're just taking baby steps there. 
like we're just starting to like be like what does it look like if i say this to you in this way versus if i say it this way or that way and really having a conversation about what everyone's role and responsibility when it comes to young people mm. we have not figured that out yet right i want to be very clear about this like just because pittsburgh's in a place where from the remake learning perspective and other key players and agencies have accepted that like oh divorcing love and discourse from civics and from industry has caused a lot of problems doesn't mean that we're actually having dynamic and cross-sector conversations around love and discourse mm. right so like it's one thing for me to say that in my really aspirational way yeah. and to see it happening in the communities that I'm cultivating in the culture of remake learning mm -hmm. and you know Elaine is doing it in her context and Megan is doing it in her context and Liz in in their context right we're still a really niche market yeah and I think that that's a challenge to us as organizers is to overcome that and to have a seat at the table with industry and to really start to translate for industry why love in the context of the future of work matters but I think we're still so like we're at the beginning of that climb mm. not even the middle if that helps answer your question right and Pittsburgh is complicated it's really hard for me as someone who grew up here to see us making a lot of the same bad turns that other tech hubs have made and to know that we're making them as we make them right and so we're doing everything we can to keep spirits high and to tell asset-based stories and to tell aspirational stories so that we're inspiring love and imagination but we're also like fighting every day to make sure that fighting oppression is at the top of the top of the conversation. So, so if I were to drop in on, um, even, even a, a meeting, uh, Liz, maybe y you can speak to this at, um, the science center, right? Which one of the nice things about having a, a network that's close and having is that you also get to sort of keep funders close to the values um, of a geography and and uh, to the things that sort of need to be done. But um, Liz, is there when when you talk about um, how especially, you know, so you're putting a, a fab lab into a science center and you have these uh, mobile labs that are going out. Um, when you market those opportunities, are you talking about um, uh, workforce and STEM pipeline, or is is it about um, you know wonder and discovery and and engaged citizenry? Um, do you do you feel like it it leans one way? Um. Well, to to be quite honest, coming from our nonprofit world where we are relying on funders to create new programming and to deliver the programming that we have it is as as ani said not not quite as straightforward um about tackling issues like fighting oppression that that we're that um that is not always top of the funders mind so to be honest um a lot of our programming stems from the grant from which it's coming. So if we're, get, if we're getting a grant from a corporation or for the Workforce Investment Board, 
our programming is geared, at least the surveys and the feedback is geared more towards creating STEM, creating um, children for the STEM pipeline, mm. feeding that STEM pipeline, which is huge here in Pittsburgh. Mm. Um, on the other hand, we we do have some more progressive funders. For instance, we're we're working with a group, a humanitarian group, an international humanitarian group, right now called Girl Up, which is a UN. Um, funded program, yeah, I know, which is humanitarian based. So we're developing a STEM curriculum to work hand in hand with their Girl Up clubs and challenge them to think um, about equal opportunity across the globe, not just um, you know hyper local, not even just local. But um, but again, that partnership was put in place through a funder. So sad to say, we have a we have a long way to go um, as far as capitalizing the most important um, human developments in our children, developing our children into human beings. Mm. We still have a long way to go, but um, we're taking steps to get there every, every, every chance we get. One of the phrases that I really like that, um, that certainly the National Science Foundation is really supportive of is broadening participation, um, right? Because it is both it can be both about um workforce readiness but also about uh who gets the opportunity to solve the challenges of our time and participate civically and and through um science and engineering so so i like broadening participation one of the things um you said, uh, Ani, like you, you referred to Pittsburgh as a sort of tech hub, which I don't know that to the rest of the country, they think Pittsburgh and tech hub. I think a lot of the country still thinks of Pittsburgh as a, a steel town, right? And um, the sort of old narrative of who uh, Pittsburgh has been in its past. What's the um, the ideal for the network um, as you, as Pittsburgh realizes itself as a as a tech hub, and um, you know, uh, and goes from the sort of the uh, steel town narrative to the love and civil discourse narrative, if that's an actual um, an actual continuum, uh, uh, what are the things that the network y- you think can contribute and are sort of highest priorities for for you all in your work? Uh, as you think about broadening participation and making sure that um, the evolution of Pittsburgh as as one geography uh, is representative of um, of all its people. From the network perspective, I think the best thing we can do is to prioritize people doing the work and prioritize young people. Like always take youth back to the center and then reconnect that into the broader context. Like start with young people and then think about what that means for the institution that they operate in start with youth and then think about policy that affects them start with youth and then think about the jobs that you're creating for them and then start with youth and think about the fact that we don't even know if jobs will be a thing Mm -hmm. in 50 years Mm -hmm. right so always go back to thinking about young people and talk to them like they're human beings and have really high expectations from them 
I love the whole love and civil discourse, civil discourse theme. Um, when I think about Pittsburgh, I think about a city who has a change narrative. So we've moved from being a steel city town to more of a biomedicine and technology mm. and even startup culture. Sure. And so when you think about broadening participation, how are you intentionally engaging all populations in those opportunities. So how are you intentionally engaging um, underrepresented minorities? How are you intentionally engaging women? Um, th those are things to think about. W one thing, just a couple examples. There are two young women in Pittsburgh that I think are pretty amazing. One, her name is Erica Peterson. And so Erica Peterson started an organization originally called Science Tots, where she was exposing young kids to STEM and sort of move through that and then notice there's this sort of coding culture. Everyone's talking about coding and the importance of coding, but um, how do we involve everyone in that? So she started an organization called Moms Who Code. Mm. And so her thought process was, let's expose moms to this. It could change career trajectories. It can give them um, the ability to support their children in that process. And so taking a population that most people weren't targeting, making sure they're brought up to speed in terms of the skill that's important and empowering them to use it. Another young lady, her name is Kalani Cook. So Kalani used to be a substitute teacher and she, in North Dakota, I believe, she was a substitute teacher. She came to Pittsburgh to participate in a tech academy. Mm. Did I stop, Mark? Okay, she came to Pittsburgh to participate in, in an academy to learn how to code, to learn programming. So when she finished that, she was able to get a position with a newspaper, returned to Pittsburgh and just started an organization called Black Tech Nation. Mm. And so she noticed there were not many African-Americans within the technology environment. And so how can she develop this network, not just in the Pittsburgh area, but beyond? And so all of these efforts to pull people in that aren't, typically thought of, I think are really important. And, and hopefully that's where we're moving in terms of defining ourselves as the city of Pittsburgh. Mm. Call me naive, but that's where I'd like to see us go um, in order to broaden participation. And then just one other thing. Yeah. So recently there's a group of us at the University of Pittsburgh and we've been working with Carnegie Mellon people and Duquesne University people. And we applied for the National Science Foundation INCLUDES grant. And INCLUDES is this long acronym, inclusion across the nation of communities of learners, of underrepresented discoverers in engineering and science. And so the premise of our grant is to diversify urban universities. So we have pre-college programs where we may have a higher number of underrepresented minorities involved in those programs from Pittsburgh public schools even, but when they apply to the universities, they may or may not be accepted mm -hmm. because of SAT scores, tie in to a lot of other things. And so our goal is to create this pathway so that students are, our programs are credentialed and then our students are badged through that experience that gives them this access to these universities that are right in our area who are really involved in a lot of those things that I mentioned so that there's some increased access there. Mm -hmm. So I see all of those efforts as changing narrative of Pittsburgh. We want love and civil discourse. <laughs> but as we move there, let's make sure we're being equitable in that process. Yeah. 
Um, Elaine, I want to come back to, uh, I, I, I am going to ask you after we, uh, wrap this conversation to come back and join me for another conversation about, um, credentialing and, um, and, uh, you know, transitions from, uh, secondary to post-secondary and, and, uh, more, we have lots to talk about. So, um, <laughs> but before I do, uh, before we do close, um, do any of you guys want to, uh, follow on to Elaine's notes? I mean, I, I think that that, that question is compelling and poignant that you posed and, I'm really glad that Ani and Elaine went before me because theirs was a sophisticated answer. Um, mine was simple. And I, I do think that if you asked everyone in the remake learning community and network that everyone would probably have a different answer. Yeah. Um, but when when the question is posed, like, what do we hope our end goal? What can be gains? Where's the traction? Whether it's changing the narrative or not, I think the, an easy answer is our people. And so I feel like this is one of very few networks because it's not an organization groups of people that they we really just want the best for all of each other and the little people and the older people that we represent Mm -hmm. and so not only is it you know like we're going to push our people into the world and they are going to bring good to all of these other places that they are going and we in our hearts and our minds know that we can't even begin to fathom what that good is like that's really exciting um but also just to to be part of a group that says like not just you know the middle group or the upper echelon but we understand the difference between equity and equality and so we need to make sure when liz mentioned earlier that there's strategic outreach and when we talked about role models and if you can't see yourself in it then you might not believe you can be it like we are there are advocates that are in our ears constantly reminding us of that. And so I think that it's really important to say that it's not just, you know, the general remake learning kids and those from the Pittsburgh region of West Virginia that we're excited to see out there spreading whatever comes of this, but it's, it's our, our most vulnerable populations. And I think that's something that we have to keep reminding ourselves of too, because we just, we can't forget that. Mm. I'm going to jump in here um, and 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 piggyback on what Megan said, which is one of the great powers of the Remake Learning Network is that we don't have to continually remind ourselves of that because so many other people are continually reminding ourselves of that within the network, um, and that's part of the that's part of the value of of this network is you know we go back to our especially me I go back to my institution and um, we are pursuing grants and we're pursuing programming and we're working on um, working on accessing the STEM pipeline or we're working on um, making our STEM competencies more um, easily integrated into our cool digital fabrication tools. And then we turn and then I turn to a remake learning event and I'm reminded just by seeing the faces of everyone else who's working hard for the youth in our community what what we're really working towards and it's and it's not necessarily those things that we're that we're writing about at home with our grants and our and our programs and our outcomes it's it is about the kids and i think the value part of the value of the network is seeing that in everyone else's faces and being constantly reminded that we're all working towards the same goal which is the young people of our community mm. 
I'm, I'm moving to Pittsburgh. <laughs> You're welcome. Please do. <laughs> um, Liz, before I, I miss my opportunity to ask, what is the coolest thing that's coming out of the Fab Lab right now? What are you guys working on? Well, we're really working um, on revamping and pushing out this mentoring program that I talked a little bit mm-hmm. about at the beginning of the podcast. Our, it's called Mentors in the Making, and it's matching underserved youth with a professional in the STEM field to co-learn the digital fabrication technologies. And I think what's making it so fun and exciting and successful is the fact that this that the STEM mentors themselves are not, um, they're not professional makers. They, a lot of them don't have any, um, any experience in, in digital fabrication. So the fact that these young people get to sit beside an adult who is maybe a chemist or maybe um, some sort of an engineer, mm. they are learning the same things at the same time. They're learning how to use the laser cutter or how to design for the 3D print. So I think the co-learning model is very exciting for the students, but also for the mentors as well. And um, we're looking to really really get that program up and running so we can affect more than just 10 students in a given year. That's kind of our big push for the upcoming couple of uh, school years. That sounds pretty, pretty amazing. Co-learning is another episode I'm going to, uh, I'm going to come back to talk to you about Liz. Um, I want to thank uh, the group of you for for joining. This is a a, a lot of voices for uh, for a, you know a, a short conversation, and so I hope that uh, you all feel like you had uh, some some time to um, be heard and and just sort of uh, that this was as as active a dialogue as we can have in this format. I do want to open up the. Uh, uh, a, a quick plug fest in case uh, you want to point folks to um, anything, uh, whether it's related to your own personal work or your institution. This is Elaine. So we had a, a conversation about, I'm not sure when this will air, but we had a conversation about sort of broadening impacts or broadening participation. And so I am involved in a conference that's coming up in April. It's April 29th to May 2nd. It'll be in in Virginia. <laughs> um, it's called Connected, a collaborative network of engineering and computing diversity. And so it's a joint conference, including several organizations, the American Society of Engineering and Education, the um, women, it's called WePAN. I don't know the acronym, but I'll get that for you, WePAN. And then NAMIPA, which is the National Association of Multicultural Engineering Program Advocates. So they're bringing all these people together to talk about broadening participation broadly from different environments. So looking at diversity, 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 um, first generation, all of those concepts um, at K-12 level, at the undergraduate, graduate level. And so if anyone is interested, I can share that information with you so you can pass that along. But it's a great space to be in to talk about a lot of the broadening participation challenges. Excellent. We're going to drop it in the show notes. That's terrific. Um, Megan Ciccone, my Twitter handle, that Megan underscore C-I-C-C-O-N-I. And there, if you're at the conferences I'm at, whether I'm presenting or just attending, you know, send me a message and we can see each other there as well. Great. And Mark, when you come to Pittsburgh, before you move here, if you just like want to come visit, we'll all show you around. Um, Mark, I'll plug our Fab Lab summer camps because those are coming out and they're going to be a lot of fun. We have one where kids can um, 
explore the virtual reality world, build their own VR glasses and program some cool stuff using them. And uh, we have one where they'll build quadcopter, little drones that they can fly around. And then we have just some cool maker camps. We have a girls maker camp, which is a lot of fun. And um, all that can be found on our website at carnegiesciencecenter.org slash fablab. And I just want to say, if you're interested in knowing more about the Remake Learning Network, you can go to remakelearning.org. If you're interested in hearing more about the history of the network and how we got to where we are, you can go to remakelearning.org backslash playbook. Uh, it's a play-by-play of case studies and processes that have gotten us, have helped to get us to where we are. Um, you can always also talk to me at, on Twitter, I am at the Ani Martinez. So that's A-N-I-M-A-R-T-I-N-E-Z. If you're a parent, check out remakelearningdays.org. It's our major push to reach parents, caregivers, and communities every year. Last year, we reached about 30,000 people locally and another 14 million on Twitter. So that's a really good way to get involved. This has been such a cool conversation and and I hope the first of many. Um, thank you guys again. Thank you, Mark. And thanks everybody else for, for taking time with us today. Thank you, Mark. I'm looking forward to you moving to Pittsburgh. Thank you, Mark. Let us know when you're coming. We will be there to greet you. <laughs> Uh, thank you all so much. I'll send you my address when uh, <laughs> when I get there. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This podcast was produced in partnership with Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us on the web at mouse.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, and Olympic fully clothed hotel pool swimmer. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. 